Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out at our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, well, good morning. You guys doing all right? All right, good to see you guys. So I was out of town a couple weeks and I heard that there was like a, a, a crazy tropical storm or hurricane or something like, did that happen while I was, while I was gone? Was it pretty crazy? <laughs> no, no. All right, all right. Well, I guess I didn't miss much. Anyway, glad that you guys are here. Um, uh, if you're visiting, want to give you a special shout out. So you would know this about me if you've been around here for very long is I'm not much of a sports person. Is my dad growing up really tried to get me to watch sports with him, basketball and football. And I did some baseball. And he's, uh, he now has a grandson who is obsessed with all of those sports. And so uh, I have tried to also engage and watching some of those, I connect with my son. And and so one of the things that I've uh, started to learn about a little bit more and try to figure out, because I was always like skateboarding, snowboarding, motocross, surfing, all that. Yeah, he wants nothing to do with any of those things. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to start learning about some of these sports. I came across an article um, about the NBA. And even if you're not a sports person, I think you're going to appreciate this because it it was really interesting. In 2013, there's a basketball team called the 76ers. And they were a very mediocre team. And they decided they're going to get rid of their general manager and they're going to hire a new one. And so they started interviewing some different guys and they find this guy named Sam Hinkie. And apparently he uh, he was in the basketball world, but that's not really what he did. He was a businessman. He had an MBA from Stanford. And and the reason why they hired him was because he was an expert at analytics. As he could look at all the stats and come up with formulas and here's how you're going to build the best team and championships. And, And he had a pretty radical idea. When he came in, he said... You're going to have to do something drastic if you ever want to have a great team. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to lose and lose really badly. And the reason why is because the more that you lose and the longer that you lose, the higher the draft pick that you get. And he said the only way that you're ever going to have a championship team is if you get an, like a superstar on the team. And so if you think about some of the, the past champions, you've got the Bulls that had Michael Jordan. This isn't a trick question. You can talk back to me, Okay. Or uh, you've had the Lakers who had, I, so I, I was hoping to start a fight there with some of you guys, because there's a lot of, I heard Magic Johnson, I heard Kobe, I heard LeBron, did I hear LeBron anywhere out? Nope, I didn't, okay, good. <laughs> All right. But you have to get a superstar if you're ever going to have a championship team. And so what he did was he immediately traded half of the team, including all of their best players away. And they started to lose and lose bad. They tied for the second, uh, for, for the most consecutive losses in a season. Their third, by their third season, they went 10 and 82, which if you don't know anything, is the worst record that you can pretty much have in basketball. And even as they started to lose and he would get uh, the opportunity to have draft picks, he would pick some of these players and then he would bench them because they were injured. He wouldn't let them play so that they could continue to lose. And throughout this whole entire thing, you know what he kept saying to people? As people were getting angry, fans were angry, the coaches, everybody's getting angry. You know what he said? Here's what he said. He said, trust the process. Trust the process. Just, you know what? You got to trust the process. It's going to be painful. It's going to take some patience, but you got to trust the process. But you know what happened? They didn't trust the process. (laughs) 
they fired him. Well, they pushed him out. They said, no way, man. We can't try. We are the worst team almost in basketball history. We're done with you. And so they kick him out. But what's interesting is the following season, things started to turn around. And it wasn't because they brought in new coaches or anything. It's because the process started to work. He started to get uh, different players and they were able to pick players based on the draft and their losing streak that they were on. And long story short, they happened to have some all-stars, even some superstars that were emerging on the team because of the process. Joel Embiid is who comes to mind. He was the MVP uh, this last year and he picked him when nobody else wanted him because he said, this guy's gonna be a superstar. He started to surround him with other players. And here's what's funny is now the superstar MVP, you know what he nicknamed himself? The process. <laughs> In fact, he's trying to trademark the slogan, trust the process. And if you had gone to a 76ers game during this, you would hear people chant, trust the process. You would go around town and this guy, Sam Hinkie, he would be on billboards and on t-shirts that says, in Hinkie we trust. <laughs> trust the process. Now, as Christians, what is the process? Like if our goal is we want to become more like Christ, we want, to, we want to spend our lives becoming more and more like him. That's the goal. What's the process to get there? If you've been around church for very long, you may have some ideas like, all right, I think probably there's prayer involved and reading the Bible and going to church. Those seem to be part of the process. But do you know what the process is to becoming more like Jesus? I bet you don't. Uh, in fact, it might be why you're kind of frustrated with faith. You don't feel like you're growing. You might even be considering walking away from this whole deal because it's not really working. And so maybe it's because you don't understand the process. And so what I want to do is I want to look at somebody who went through the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. He was one of Jesus' disciples named Peter. And Peter went from an average blue-collar fisherman to a hero of the faith, and I think if we maybe just take the cliff notes of his story, maybe there's a, there's a pattern, there's a process that begins to emerge that you and I can replicate. So if you don't know anything about Peter, like I said, he was a fisherman. He lived in a small village. He had a small fishing uh, business with his brother Andrew and a couple other guys who end up being disciples as well. And he's Jewish, and he's religious. He believes in God, and he practices his faith. But his brother Andrew is like, super religious. In fact, when he's not fishing, he goes and he hangs out with this guy named John. And John goes around and he starts preaching about the kingdom of God and how God's about to do something big and you need to repent. And then he begins to baptize people. You probably heard of him before. His name is John the Baptist. And so Andrew follows him around. And one day as they're hanging out at the Jordan River, John says, that's the guy I've been talking about. And he points at Jesus. He says, that's the Messiah. That's the one that God is sending to save us. And so you need to follow that guy, not me. And so Andrew goes and he meets Jesus and he's convinced this is the Messiah. And so he runs 40 miles home. He finds his brother Peter and he goes, you gotta meet him. Jesus, he's the Messiah. And so he hauls him back down there and apparently they, they kick it off, Jesus and Peter. It doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but it gives us this little, little insight is when Jesus and Peter met, Jesus gave Peter a nickname, Cephas. So things had to like go pretty well because that's kind of how guys operate. We do one of two things when we like somebody. We make fun of them or we give them a ridiculous nickname. Cephas means rock, by the way. So like uh, Nate who brought this TV out, Nathan. Within 30 seconds, you know what I was calling him? Nate Dog, <laughs> right? It's Nate Dog. 
Because that's what we do. You know, we're buds. We're, that's Nate Dog. All right? This is, this is Cephas. He's, he's a rock. Apparently, things aren't going well with Jesus' ministry initially. He's trying to go and teach amongst the people uh, in the, the place that he was raised, and they weren't listening. And so he decided maybe it's time to move and try a, a new spot. And so he goes with Peter and Andrew, where they live, and he finds their local synagogue, and he begins teaching. And as people start to listen, including Peter and Andrew and, and countless others, they start to realize that this Jesus is not like the other rabbis that they've heard before. His teaching is quite different. The authority that he has, the insight that he has, and then right in the middle of one of his talks, he starts casting out a demon from somebody. And so Peter, he's paying attention. I would imagine he's a bit skeptical and he's thinking, okay, let's just wait and see if this really is the Messiah. I mean, you could talk big, let's, let's see if you could really... Uh, back it up. And Peter has a problem that Jesus might be able to solve. And so after he's done teaching in the synagogue and he casts out this demon, he says, Jesus, will you come to my house? My mother-in-law is there and she's, she's really sick. She's got a fever. It doesn't look like she's going to make it. Is there anything that you can do? So Jesus comes to Peter's house and he heals his mother-in-law and she gets up and she acts as if nothing has ever happened. And when word gets around of what took place, people from all over the region start to come and find Jesus. And for the rest of the night, he begins healing people and casting out demons. And finally, day breaks, and it's, uh, it's time for Jesus to move on. And so he sneaks away, and he goes to the next village where there's a, another synagogue where he can continue to teach and preach and tell people the good news of his arrival. Let me just pause there. Because you would imagine, after all of this took place, Peter and Andrew have now witnessed this miraculous thing happen, and then, like that, Jesus is gone. <laughs> He's out. What are you going to do? Well, the only thing that they can do is they got to go back to work. And so they go onto their boat, and they begin fishing once again. And I would imagine many days go by as they fish, and one night they're out there fishing, and they're coming back in, and they haven't had any luck. They haven't caught anything. And as they're coming to the shore, they notice there's a man there and he's speaking to a crowd of people. And as they get closer, Peter recognizes this man. That's Jesus. Apparently he's back in town. And Jesus sees Peter and he says, hey, can I borrow your boat for a moment? Because there's a bunch of people trying to hear me talk right now. And if I can stand on the front, then they can see and they can hear me a little bit better. And he's like, yeah, sure. You know, it's, well, it's yours. So he finishes up his teaching and he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, I've noticed your boat is empty. Yeah, thanks for rubbing it in. Yes, it is empty. Why don't you go try one more time? Peter's been out all night. He's tired. I really want to deal with this right now, Jesus. But because I respect you, you seem to be somebody important. I'll do it for you. And when he does this, he casts his net. And it says that there's more fish than he's ever seen. So much so that it almost sinks the boat. But as, as soon as he sees this fish, he's no longer concerned about the fish. He's concerned about the man that brought him these fish. In fact, it says he was terrified. Who is this man? I've seen him cast out demons. I've seen him heal people. Now I see that he has power over nature itself. Jesus turns to Peter and Andrew and others and says, follow me. You've now seen what I can do, who I am. Why don't you follow me? And you can learn more. And so he does. For the next three years, the disciples follow Jesus around and he continues to heal he continues to cast out demons. He even raises people from the dead. He gives insight into who God is and what the kingdom of God looks like and how you can be a part of it. He even says, here's how you can know God personally. And for three years, he follows and he watches. And then eventually, Jesus says, now I want you to go and I want you to do everything that I've been doing. 
And he sends out the disciples. He says, go and proclaim the good news and go and heal people, cast out demons in my name. You now have the authority and the power. And it works. And so there becomes this like moment in the story where the disciples, and it kind of focuses in on Peter, they have to make a decision about Jesus. And Jesus forces the issue. Here's what he says, Matthew 16, 13. He says, who do people say the son of man is? Now, this, this phrase, the son of man, this is from an Old Testament prophecy, and this is Jesus referring to himself. So who, who are people saying that I am? Because obviously people are talking about me. I mean, how could they not be, right? I'm able to do things that nobody's ever seen before, and so everybody has an opinion about me. What are they saying? Do they love me? Do they hate me? Continues on. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, people don't know exactly what to make of you. You're clearly a person with authority and power, and you've been sent by God, but we're not sure how to make sense of that. Are you like an Old Testament prophet that's come back to life? Are you coming in the spirit of John the Baptist? We're not exactly sure who you are, but we know that you are somebody who has been sent by God. Continue on. Here, Jesus presses the issue. He says, okay, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? You've had an inside look on, on who I am and what I can do. What conclusion have you come to? This is what's great about Peter. Peter just jumps up and he says pretty much what everybody has already been thinking. He answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I think you really are that guy. Like you're not just a prophet. You're not just an interesting philosopher and teacher. That you really are the son of God, the Messiah, the one who has been sent to save us. And here's Jesus' response. He says, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I like it because Jesus doesn't go, oh, shucks, you guys, I know I'm doing good stuff. He goes, no, no, that's who I am. In fact, God revealed this to you, and when you proclaim that I'm the Messiah, it's true. And so they come to this moment in which they have to make a decision. Who is he? And they say he's the Messiah. And so then Jesus says this. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. Now, remember, this means rock, okay? And so it's kind of a play on words. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, when you hear that word church, you think of a place like this. That's not what they're thinking of. This word in the Greek is ekklesia. And what this, this means is it's like a gathering, an assembly of people. It's not a religious word. It's just when people come together, he says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, just understand what he's claiming here. He is saying, I am going to create this movement of people. And it's going to be so big and so transformative that it's going to take over the entire world. There's never been anything like this in human history. And there's going to be one thing that all of these people have in common. It's that they come together and they declare that I am the king of all creation, that I am the Messiah. And there is going to be nothing that stops it. Dictators, governments, even internal scandals aren't going to stop this movement that's going to take over the world. Do you understand a little bit how ridiculous that claim is? There's 12 12 of them hanging out. And he's going, we're going to take over the world. All right, let me put it in context. Let's imagine that you and I go to lunch. And I say, hey, I'm going to start this movement. And this movement is going to be 
It's gotta be a movement of people that is gonna transform the world. And the central part of the movement is not gonna be race or ethnicity or it's gonna be status, none of those things. What's gonna be central to these people in this movement is they're gonna make their entire lives about me. I am gonna be the most important. They're gonna bow down and worship me as their king. I'm gonna call it Codianity. And it's gonna change the world. You ready to sign up? You know who wouldn't sign up? My wife. My kids, my family, anyone who knows me uh, would not sign up for this movement. And yet, this is what Jesus is claiming. As he says, I'm going to start this movement called the church, and it's going to transform the world. And they're in. They say, we're in, Jesus. We want to be a part of this movement. And they are in. Even when things get difficult, my favorite one is when Jesus, he stands in front of a crowd, pretty common for him, and he starts talking about himself and the kingdom and following him. And then he says, if you want to be my follower, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And everybody peaced out. (laughs) They're like, man, this got weird. We're out of here. See ya. And so everybody leaves and it's just the disciples left. And Jesus looks at them and he goes, so do you want to leave too? I'm thinking, yeah, we do want to leave. Like, this is weird, Jesus. Why would you say something like that? But then Peter jumps in, and here's what he says. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We're stuck. Yeah, that was weird. That was uncomfortable. I'm not really enjoying following you right now, but where am I going to go? Because we've already decided you're the Messiah, We've seen too much. We know too much. We followed you for too long to give up now. They're in. Well, they thought they were in. Because if you fast forward just a little bit, they weren't as in as they thought they would be. Because when Jesus gets arrested and put on trial and tortured and crucified, a junior high girl comes up to Peter and says, hey, weren't you one of the guys that used to hang out with this Jesus? Peter goes, I don't even know that man. I've never seen him before. It's over. Peter has given up all the hope and the trust that he had for Jesus in the future, wiped away. And it looks as if Peter's story is going to end the same way that it starts. Because Peter goes back to working on the boat and he's out fishing and Jesus has been laid in the tomb and he's given up and and something funny happens. G, uh, uh, Peter is coming in from another night of fishing, and it says, by the way, it says that his boat was empty. I'm beginning to think Peter wasn't great at his job, because every time he goes fishing, he comes back empty-handed. But anyway, he comes back in, and his, they're heading towards the shore. He sees a man standing on there. He doesn't recognize this guy. And the man goes, hey, how come your boat's empty? Which is rude, right? That is so rude. Don't, yeah, I know it's empty. I was, well, we just, you know, we haven't had any luck today. And the guy goes, this is great, he goes, you should try fishing from the right side of your boat. How annoying is that? Oh, the right side. Oh, I should probably, you're right, the right side. That is the right side to fish from. And before Peter responds, he says, he thinks, you know what? I have tried that once before and it happened to work. And since we're out here and we've been out here all night, before we pack up, let's give it one more shot. Same thing. Throws it over. More fish than he's ever seen before. But again, he's not concerned about the fish because he knows there's only one person that can do that. So he takes off his cloak, he jumps in the water, he swims, he embraces, and he says, my Lord, it's you. You've risen. They sit down and they have a meal together and they begin discussing what is taking place. And at the end of the meal, 
And by the way, you gotta, gotta kind of imagine the excitement that's taking place in Peter's mind, but also it's a little bit awkward. Because the last interaction he had was him denying that he even knew this man, and now here he is right in front of him. And so Jesus asked Peter, hey, by the way, are you ready to follow me for real this time? Hold nothing back? He responds, of course. There's, there's no place I'd rather be. She says, good, because I got a lot of work for you to do. And Jesus tells him and the rest of the disciples uh, their marching orders. Here's what he says in, in Matthew. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says, okay, here's what needs to happen next. Is I'm going to leave soon. And your job is to go and replicate yourself. Like, you know how you followed me around for the last three years and you learned what it means to to be a follower of me and my teachings and how I lived and all the things. I need you to go and I need you to now replicate yourself. Go into the world and make more people like you. Oh, and by the way, um, before I go, I'm going to send you a helper because this is going to be a huge task. And Peter, no offense, but you're not great at this. And so I'm going to send a helper for you. It's called the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you to be able to do these things. And so what you need to do is you need to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Go to Jerusalem, begin to pray, and wait. And that's what they do. Peter, along with about 120 other believers, are in a, in a house in Jerusalem, and they're beginning to pray. And there's kind of a lot of commotion that's taking place outside of their house because it happened to be at the same time which there's this Jewish festival called Pentecost, and there's people, Jews, from all over the land who are coming in and they're going to celebrate. It says that there is a huge wind that rushes through the home. Apparently it made a giant sound because people outside of the house started to come in. The crowd started to gather and they're asking, hey, what happened? Like, your furniture's upside down. We heard a big bang. What's, what's the deal here? And Peter sees an opportunity. Peter's a preacher. And so when he sees a crowd gather around him, he goes, you know, I've got two options here. Because this is kind of what preachers do. I can either give a sermon or take an offering, or do both. And so he decides he's going to give a sermon. So he jumps up there in front of these people, and he begins to to teach. But side note, one of the things that was taking place as all this was happening is people were able to respond to the crowd, the people who were praying, respond to the crowd in their native tongue, which is really, really strange. Because all these people came from far off lands that had their own native dialect that people wouldn't be able to know unless they were from their specific village or their town or their region. And yet all these people were able to have a conversation in their tongue. And so people are going, wait, 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 how do you know my language? Like you're not a person who should, have you ever seen those YouTube videos of those people who learn languages, foreign languages, and they go into a restaurant and they start speaking it and the people there are like, how does this white boy know how to speak? Like that doesn't make That's kind of what's happening here is, how did they know my language? Peter says, well, the reason why we can speak your language is because the Holy Spirit has come. And it was promised to us by Jesus. You know who Jesus is. All of you were here a couple weeks ago. In fact, some of you guys were shouting, crucify him. And he was put on a cross and he was put in a tomb and now he is resurrected. And guess what? There is hundreds of people in this town right now that have seen him. Go and ask somebody. And then he lays into it and he says, here's the deal, is Jesus was a man sent by God. 
He performed miracles. He had incredible authority. He, he taught as if uh, he had uh, divine authority. And then he finishes with this in Acts. He says this. <clears throat> he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And here's kind of like the big final like conclusion. You crucified him. But God raised him from the dead, vindicating his claims. There's only one conclusion you can make. He is the Lord and the Messiah that God promised us. So people hear this message and here's how they respond. The people heard this. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What you're saying is true. We did crucify him. And by the way, it wasn't just them. It's every person. It's our sin that put him there. We did crucify him. And it's also true that he is resurrected. And this power of the Holy Spirit that confirms it, what are we supposed to do now? Is there any hope for us? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's what he says. You need to believe and be baptized, meaning you need to believe. You need to repent of what you have done, turn around from your sin, and you need to put your faith in Jesus, and then you need to go public with that by being baptized. Here's what they do. They say this. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So think about this. Within a few weeks, we went from the 12 to the 120 to the to thousands in the very place in which Jesus was just crucified. And so what do we go from here next? Now we have thousands of people who are going, yes, we want to follow this Jesus. And Peter steps up and he goes, oh, I know exactly what your next steps are. Your next steps are the same thing that happened to me and the rest of the disciples and what Jesus had planned for us is you need to now start doing life together because you have this new life in Christ and that means you have a new family that you're a part of. And that's what happens. The whole next part of this chapter is the launch of the church and how they start doing life together. It says they start breaking bread, they listen to the apostles' teaching, they meet in the synagogue, they help meet one another's needs, they start doing life together. And people start taking notice. And people go, I want to be a part of what they're doing. And it says that God added to their number every day as they did it. So here's the question. What took Peter from being just a blue-collar fisherman to a hero of the faith. What did the process look like? Like, you've now heard kind of a big picture. Can you, can you just boil that down to some process? And at first glance, you go, no, I don't, I have no idea. That is a lot. A lot happened there. Years ago, I decided, I want to try to figure out maybe, just for my own sake, a simple process of following Jesus. Like, what does it look like to follow him and become more like him in ways that I can understand? Because this is just all over the place for me. And I need just to, I'm a simple guy. I need to just boil it down. So it's funny, as after months and months of studying and looking at it and kind of sketching this out, what I came up with was something that thousands of people before me have already realized. I'm a little slow on the uptake, but I'll pretend like I, I created it. Just really three steps in the process of becoming like Jesus. If you just boil it down to its simplest form. And we see this in Jesus. We see this in Peter. We see this throughout the scriptures. Just, let me show you it real quick. I'm a visual learner, and so this makes sense to me. Is 
this is kind of the process of what it looks like to become more like him. Is first one is you got to know Jesus. Right? Think about what Jesus did. He comes on the scene and he starts gathering crowds together and he starts talking about here's who I am, here's who God is, here's the kingdom, here's how you can live in the kingdom, here's how you can have a relationship with God through me. Really, it boils down to, look, I want to know Jesus. He says, now, once you've come to know me and you've decided who I am, I want you to follow me. I want you to, to be in a relationship with me. I want you to make your life about me and I want you to continue to know me more. And simultaneously with that, as I come to know Jesus, I also start doing life with other people who also know Jesus. I have a new life and a new family. And so Jesus starts inviting people to follow him. The 12 disciples were his core, but there was other people who were part of the Jesus community, even in early on. As we see, he invited other people to follow him. And one of the things I like about that show, The Chosen, although there's kind of a lot of extra that's in it, is they show that it wasn't just 12 people following Jesus. Because there's also this mention of, well, Jesus sent 72 out, and where did they come from? Because there was a Jesus community following him. Because they knew, if I want to be a Jesus follower, i got to be a part of Jesus' crew. And then, as we know Jesus more, and we do life together... He sends us out in the world and he says, now I want you to just go and serve people, love people, and then share the good news in the hopes that more and more people will come into a relationship with me and know me. And you can just see, it just repeats your entire life. This is what we do. We just live in this sweet spot where we're just going through the Jesus process. And so let me give you a little background or a little maybe like behind the scenes. I'll give you some church philosophy for five minutes. Some of you guys are like, I don't care. Just five minutes. Our church has built our entire ministry around just this simple model right here. Maybe it'll help you make sense of why we do certain things. Is at Seacoast, this is what we do all the time. Whether you kind of recognize it or not, this is what we're trying to get people to do all the time. It's just these three things. So let's start with the first one is know Jesus. We say Jesus changes everything. We really believe that. We believe historically he has turned the world upside down. We believe he has changed countless lives and he can change your life too if you will come to know him. And so one of the things that we focus in on is helping people know Jesus. So like Jesus and just like Peter, we gather crowds together and we just tell you about Jesus. We tell you about the scriptures. We, we, we hopefully introduce him to you for the first time. We help you know him a little bit better. We, allow, uh, we, or we give you opportunities to, to worship him. And, and so that's really what's taking place here in this room. Is Our hope is by the end of the day, you'll walk out going, I know Jesus a little bit more. Or I met Jesus for the first time. And we do this through worship and prayer and communion and baptism and it's all about knowing Jesus and so we've created places and programs in order to know Jesus more so this is pretty obviously a place that we come to know Jesus more as a as a community but the kids are doing the same thing over in their building and the youth are doing the same thing in the warehouse and within the next couple weeks people are going to be doing that at our new Seal Beach campus is just creating places and spaces and programs for people to know Jesus. Next part of it is, uh, is to do life together. We say that we want to live differently. To follow Jesus means to live differently. And the only way you're ever going to live differently is not being on your own, being a solo. No, it's only going to be through doing life with other people. Just think about it. When Jesus started to proclaim publicly who he was, 
Immediately he brought them into a community. Peter, he gets up there, he gives a speech, 3,000 say yes, and immediately he integrates them into the church. He says, okay, now that you follow Jesus, you gotta get on the team. You gotta be a part of the crew. And that's what we do here, is we say, okay, look, we're gonna know Jesus, and we're gonna know Jesus together. We live in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile to many of the things that we believe and the way that we want to live. And, and I've realized that I need a community that I can not only grow in, but as a place of refuge and strength. That I can come and people like-minded will walk with me and go, hey, no, we're raising our kids together. No, 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 this is how God wants marriage to look like, and so we're gonna push together. You know what, I wanna find purpose in life, and I don't wanna just continue to live for myself, and so we're gonna do this together. There's an epidemic of loneliness that's taking place in our society. There's a book that was written in 1989, and it talked about this need for a third place, and you've probably heard me talk about it before, is the third place in this book is the idea that the first place is your home, the second place is your work or school, and then the third place is a place in which you can do life with other people. And so uh, companies like Starbucks were actually started on this idea. They were going to not just serve mediocre coffee, but... um, yeah, shots fired. Uh, but they were going to become a third place where people can come together and connect. You know what's happened? It's all failed. None of it has worked. The need is still there, but nobody's figured out how to make it happen. You can see people looking for a third place to connect. Uh, my kids were in sports or in sports, and this last season we kind of did some more travel stuff with our eight-year-old mistake. And I realized how desperate people are to find community. Because people are spending all weekend at a baseball field for eight-year-olds, and they're desperate to connect. And we see this all over the place. We see this online. We see, and it's not working. There's no true connection that's taking place. People are lonely. The second place, work, has actually even been erased in the last few years as people start to work from home. And so as people become more and more isolated and they're looking for life, they only are finding loneliness. And what we as a church can provide, and part of Jesus' uh, whole vision for the church was to find a place in which you can do life together. And so I'll be totally honest with you. One of the things that we try to do is we try to make this place a hub of your life. Your home and here, all your life revolves around it. And we're not ashamed to say it because that's what we think the church is supposed to do, is we want you to do life here. We want you to find your people. And so we create places. We just did a campaign, and you guys committed to giving $5 million for us to renovate our former auditorium in the hopes that we can do life together. It's community life center. It's just a place to do life. Where programs like Rooted can take place, and where some of our ministries and our classes, and, and we host events and concerts, and we recently launched a school because we want people to do life together. We also have other places, you know, patios and playgrounds and a kid's park, which is having its grand opening in a couple of weeks. You got to make sure you're there for that. And the plans we have for a future park and cafes, all of those are designed for you to stick around and meet somebody, to make a friend. Because we really strongly believe that this is how you're going to grow. One of the dreams that we have as a church is that you can come onto campus any day of the week and you can just find life, just life taking place. People meeting in groups, having a cup of coffee, kids playing on playgrounds. This is just a place for life. The third thing is to go and multiply. And I'm going to be really honest. 
I could have made up a bunch of theory here. I could have just put a bunch of stuff that sounds nice, but I don't think we know how to do this. Not just us Seacoast, but like the church in the West, specifically in Southern California. I don't, I don't think we know how to do this yet. The goal here is for us to go out and to serve people and share the gospel message in order to bring them into a relationship with Jesus. But I don't think we know how to do that right now. If you went 20 years ago, there was this, this assumption that church was a good thing culturally and that it would probably be a good idea for me to go. And so if you put on a show and you give maybe some lessons of how to have a better week, people might show up for church. And they did. Guess what happened? That didn't work anymore. You may have experienced this. is you've invited a friend and they're going, uh-uh. And you go, oh, I'll buy you lunch afterward. Uh-uh. Okay, but what about like the kids? Pro- no, not interested. Because there seems to be some, some hostility about coming to church now at least in indifference. And so I'm not sure we know how to do this, but I think God's given us some hints of how we're supposed to do this. I'm beginning to see some things emerge. Like that last thing about living differently. I think as the world becomes more chaotic and confusing, there is going to be a group of people who look at Christians and the way that we, 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 we have our families and our marriages and we find purpose and hope and we love one another. I think they're going to look at it and go, I'm not sure if I believe what they believe, but... I like the way they live a lot more than what everybody else is up to. Because that seems like chaos, and they seem like they at least have something going on. Jesus actually gives an illustration. He says, you're supposed to be like a city on a hill. And as everything around it is filled with darkness, and people are confused, and they're wandering, and they're not sure where to go, they see you as a light, and they go, there seems like answers there. There seems like hope there. That seems like a place where maybe, maybe I can find healing. I think that's what we're supposed to be. I think as we do life together more and more and we start to live differently, one of the things that's going to happen is people are going to take notice and then all we have to simply do is say, yeah, why don't you come with me? Yeah, let me tell you about this, Jesus. Let me tell you why we live the way that we do. And so here's the question. Do you trust the process? Do you trust the process? It's not like, like, do you agree and you go, yeah, that sounds about right. I concur. Mm-hmm. I like the circle. It makes sense. Three steps. Okay. No, no, no. Like, do you trust the process as in, like, are you doing it? Are you, are you in the process? Are you a part of it? Because that, that wheel, if you're only doing one of them, you know what that is? That's a lopsided wheel. You're going to have a lopsided faith, and you're not going to end up where you want to be. You have to be in that sweet spot of faith in the middle where you're, you're integrated, and you're in the process of doing those three things. I recently heard a story of a family who is in the process. And they've gone from not being engaged to just fully engaged in the process and some of the life change that has taken place. And so I thought I would end the service with their story. Watch this. Um, my name is David Tang. I've been attending Seacoast for about five years. My name is Addison Tang. I've been attending for five years as well. And I'm Summer Tang, and I've been attending for five years. Growing up, I was raised Buddhist, um, and I was put into daycare, which Lone's Cold was a Calvary Chapel. And my mom continued to put me in, like, kind of like after-school stuff, but it was uh, also Christian-based. So just small exposures throughout my life about uh, faith and all that stuff regarding Christianity. 
Um, I was invited to church by my first grade teacher when I was in first grade, and so that's when I started going to church. I just always kind of believed in God. But then, um, as an adult, I attended some Bible study. We went to church. We had gone to church together. And, um, yeah, and then after we were married, we went to church for a little bit. Yeah, and then got lazy. I think we talked about it where we felt like we were lukewarm Christians, going to church on Christmas, Easter, sometimes missing that, you know, and I think just we got really involved with life. We assumed that raising Addie, she would be Christian, but taking her to church on Christmas and sometimes Easter didn't do it, and then all of a sudden she's in seventh grade and she doesn't know if she believes in God. Um, she was ready to explore other religions, and that was really a wake-up call for Dave and I, and that's when we decided that it was time to go to church. Yeah, the first, the first I wouldn't say probably the first six months was, was tough, because the change of habit. You know, you're used to doing uh, whatever you want on a Sunday, but we both um, agreed together that it was important to set a good example and to get Addison involved in church. I didn't understand why I would have to go to church if I didn't believe, because at this point I thought that all Christians who went to church believed. They weren't just people who were curious about God or they were people who just wanted to see what our church was about. And then at that point we were trying to f figure out like how do we get her involved? She didn't want to go to the high school ministry or the junior high ministry. We, we've been coming here about six months and um, that's when the fall session of Rooted was going to kick off and I thought, oh, let's join the small group. Let's, let's do this because we really didn't know anyone at church and staying away from church that long, I had started to question my own faith and kind of let the the culture of the world take over and it was enough for me to be a good person and so I feel like Rooted really explained <clears throat> who God is, um, what he means to me, how do I talk to him, how do I pray, how do I have a relationship with him and that's what started us to volunteer is, um, is Rooted and then that's when we began volunteering and we had Addie greet with us. It took, uh, it took two and a half years from when we started going to church, and Dave and I prayed a whole lot. A whole lot. <laughs> yeah, and just that walk through the pumpkin patch, and that one kid who invited her. It was the pumpkin patch event in 2021, and <clears throat> I had a friend in my history class, but I didn't know she went to Seacoast, so she saw me in the pumpkin patch, and she invited me to youth group, and at first I was like, oh, I don't know if I should go, but then she's like, please, I'm the only person there and I need a friend to go. And I felt obligated to go. And the first night was really awkward because I didn't know God, I didn't know anyone, so I just felt like I was intruding. And then I went to Hume Lake with Sophie and some of my friends. She wasn't sure about camp, I remember that. Uh, we put the deposit down, she was really mad about that. <laughs> really mad. Um, and then I said, no big deal, if you're not gonna go, you're not gonna go, we're not forcing you. But then she ended up wanting to go, and then not having any contact with her that week was terrifying. <laughs> I didn't know if it was too much for her. And then, I still remember the text on the bus ride. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, um, when she got service again, she texted me. <laughs> 
said she gave her life to Christ at camp. <laughs> and then, I mean, that was just a huge answer to our prayers. And we're just so grateful. And I mean, she has just blossomed since then in church. She's volunteering for things. She, I mean, the youth ministry here is amazing. And she's getting baptized next week. Yes. No, tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking it's next week. <laughs> uh, I still do Bible, our well, rooted groups. I, we're still in contact with them. We went through Rooted uh, Plus with yeah. them, and we still have our own Bible study with them, and we still keep in contact with them, and it's giving us more roots in the church, you know, and basically a family that have the same values and that you know you can rely on. I would say that um, our Rudy group, they've they become some of our closest friends. We vacation together. We send each other prayer requests all the time. We share our joy, we share our sadness. And like Dave had said, having good friends that are Christ followers is, is different because I feel like there's no, no weirdness, no judgment. And they're there to lean on, they're there to lift us up when we need it, and we can do the same for them. And it's just, it's a different friendship than I've ever had. It's amazing. Okay, so here's the bottom line. If you don't listen to anything else I've said and you've fallen asleep and now you just woke up because somebody clapped, here's the deal. Is uh, if you want to become more like Jesus, you got to trust the process. And this weekend, we're going to be able to take some next steps for some of us because we have rooted signups, and, and that's going to be kicking off, I believe, next week. And so if you've never done it or you're thinking about doing it again, I highly encourage you to do it because we're going to do life together. So let me pray for us, and then we'll go. Lord God, thank you so much for this place and this community that we get to be a part of. Lord, I just pray that we would be people who not just enter into the process, but people who trust it, trust that you are making us more and more like you. And so, Lord, we thank you for the people who come around us and encourage us and push us forward. We thank you for meeting us here in this place. And we also pray that you would use us as we go out into the world. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Today we pray. Amen. All right, will you guys stand with me? Thank you so much for being here this weekend. You can sign up either online or on the patio for Rooted. And we'll see you next weekend. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.